This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. This is the CMS Podcast. Classic View from the Boundary. Hello, welcome to another classic View from the Boundary. I'm Jonathan Agnew, and I've been fortunate enough to be the BBC's cricket correspondent for nearly 30 years, which is quite a good stint, you'd have thought. But my tenure pales into insignificance when compared to the longevity of a guest we were joined by in 2007. Nicholas Parsons was an actor, presenter and comic, but is perhaps best known as host of Radio 4 Quizmaster Just a Minute, a position he held for over half a century, from 1967 until 2019. And during his career, Parsons was a regular on screen and on radio, becoming one of the most popular characters in British entertainment. He was also a cricket fanatic. In 2007, India were the tourists and visiting Lords in the first test of a three-match series. The rain-affected game ended in a close draw and during a showery hour or so on a Saturday, Nicholas Parsons popped in to see us and take a view from the boundary. I've got to say right away, sitting up here in this media centre, I didn't realise how lucky you all are. It is the most fabulous position to see cricket. And you're in, in the setting here, I mean, the home of cricket here at Lords, that wonderful pavilion as a backdrop over there, and the game going on. I mean, I've been in seventh heaven for the last hour and a half just <laughs> watching it all. And of course, there's been great cricket to watch yeah. as well. Oh, it's, it, I'm so thrilled and so privileged and well, I'm so grateful. Well, it really well it's, but it's good to be reminded because, mm. because it, is, it is like mm. going to work sometimes for, for us. And to mm. see your face light up when you, when you walked in here, it's, oh. it's, it's a good reminder, actually, of, of just how lucky we, we, we all are. Were, were you following it closely during the Ashes as well? I mean, not the last one. We're, we're forgetting that one. Mm. We're, we're sort of um, airbrushing that out of history. <laughs> um, but, the, but the one here two, two summers ago, did you oh, caught up in the... Gosh, the, yes. The I mean, the atmosphere then was... Uh, I think it went to everybody's head. I mean, they just got carried away. But what a wonderful thing. Again, this is the wonderful thing about this game, and I do believe in all sport, it is possible to get fired up. And, and that sort of adrenaline, which I know as a performer on the stage, once the adrenaline is pumping and everything's going your way, it, it can work wonders. Yes. I mean, the thing is that adrenaline is a strange thing. It's when you're performing, I mean, I've just come off this cruise ship where I've been entertaining, and I did two shows because I was only it was a brief visit on one night. The first audience was a bit sticky and was trying to get them going. I was, it went very well and they were laughing. I thought, actually, <laughs> the cruise director's mark was priceless. He said, oh, it's very good. And I said, well, they're a bit sticky. He said, yes, but nobody left. <laughs> That's a good sign, of it? But actually, you see, on cruise ships, they, they, they have a different attitude, the audience. They're, you know, you're, you're just part of the attraction they paid for. They can, not like in the theatre. You wouldn't expect in the middle of a show in the theatre to get up, oh, I'm bored with this, go home. But they, they do. They'll just get up any time and disappear. Anyway, the, the, the second show, the audience were fantastic. And the adrenaline pumps, and then you are better than yourself. Right. And that's what it's all about. And, I'm, and it's the same in sport. And to think that in a game that lasts for sometimes up to five days, you can get that adrenaline going and they can be on a roll and so everybody's just a little bit sharper and it works. But look at you, I, I was going to bring it up later, but mm. you're, you're full of it yourself now. I mean, you, you said I mustn't mention your age and I won't. Well, you mentioned my age, I'm over 80, you yes. You said I could mention that you're an octogenarian. This energy and enthusiasm that you have, uh, it's, it's fantastic, isn't it? Where, where, where do you summon that from? I don't know, it's natural, it's part of me, isn't it? I mean, the, uh, I, I, I love my work, I love my profession. I struggled very hard to get into the profession because I, my parents at the time, you didn't do what you wanted, you did as you were told. 
And I come from a professional family, and my mother was particularly horrified. The idea of going to be an actor. No, everybody in that profession was debased and degraded and debauched. Someone as young and ineffectual as you, you've got to stutter, you're a bit dyslexic, and, and no, no. And uh, so they stopped me. I became an engineer. Did five years on Clyde Bank. What did five years working up there with all the fellows? It's all like that. I wasn't big night that big English badge. You come here. We'll teach you to get your effing horns dirty. That's your life. That's your love. You know, I survived. I mean, I survived with humor because I was able to do impersonations and mimic, and I endeared myself to my workmates by doing that. It was tough. It was uncompromising. Yeah. But I was getting away doing this and bits and pieces in the evening and finding out that I had the talent. But when the war was over and I was discharged from everything, I just said, this is it, I'm going for it, even though I was a qualified engineer. And I think the fact that I got into it late and I had to work so hard to get into the business and I loved doing it so much, that enthusiasm has never left me. And therefore, now at my, in my golden years, I'm still enjoying every minute of it. And I suppose you feel rather privileged to think that if they still want me and they can still do it and shows they're still going well, I am privileged, yes. and uh, I just love it. And um, I say, that shows on that ship. It was an awful business getting out there and coming back. And it, two shows of one hour and one evening with only a few minutes break in between is quite demanding, but it was wonderful. You might not have got away with that stripy blazer up on the Clyde, would you? Oh, no, no. You see, the, this is the interesting thing about image, isn't it? Image. I mean, there I was in my Bible suit, my time, I went there, my hands were like that and came up with Greece and Ireland and so forth. But, you know, and people say, I can't imagine that. I know, because you do something. And then, of course, when I worked as a straight man with Arthur Haynes, and I was always smart and suave, and of course, you see, the foil to the working class representative that he was. And people always think that, you know, was, one was a, some, you know one, that was the image, that was me. And then when you wore lots of different clothes doing a, presenting a, a quiz show, which is a very cool job to do and trying to keep the people. They think that is definitive you. I say, no, no, that is your image of me. And, and for that job, that's the image I have to project. For that job, that's the image I have to project. And if when we do just a minute, it's a bit different image one's projecting because we're having fun, I'm dealing with comedy, I'm dealing with some of the wonderful comic minds and Quick, the professional. People, yes. Oh, it's great, but yes. whatever job you do, it's a perceived image. It, it's not the you. I mean, you as a professional are projecting something which is akin to the real Jonathan Agnew, but that is your professional image. And maybe at home you're a little bit more laid back and casual and relaxed. We don't know, but not professionally, right. see? You, you can't work at this rate, actually, in, in real life all the time, can you? you, you no, you, you, I'm more selective. The would explode, I think, if he was himself uh, for, the, for what, any more than 20 minutes that he is behind <laughs> the microphone. Um, exactly, exactly. It, it's, it's great to speak to someone of your age about mm. cricket, um, mm. Nicholas, because you, you really can take us back, can't you, to, to, oh, absolutely. to, to a long, long way back when you, when you first encountered this great game. Well, Are we talking uh, pre-war? Or, or oh, you of course pre-war, yes. yes. I remember back in the 30s, I, I was always imbued with the, the sport of following the sport. I mean, I've always played a lot of games, and I've always, I'm a great sports person. If I hadn't been an actor, I think I'd love to have been a professional sportsman. And it's interesting that rugby was the one I excelled at and got my colours and everything and I was at Glasgow University for three years and played actually in an East West uh, trial for Scotland. Really? Mm. But, uh, Where were you? Someone in the, in the, in the backs, were you? Uh, yes, in the front. I mean, everybody says, well, I'm, I'm 12 and a half stone, always have been, haven't changed. Uh, I was in the forward and, and they said, but, but, yes, I was loose head, but they said, you know, your weight. But when I, w I was one of the heaviest in the pack. It's only, the game's evolved in a way where now you get the 13, 15 stone fellows in the pack, right. which is, didn't happen then.
But cricket, which I did well at school and university, but I, um, I didn't excel in, this. I did as in other games, but I loved it. And I've always had this passion for following it. And my county, which I adopted as a follower, was Surrey, because my father was a doctor, had taken a practice in, in Clapham, and it wasn't far from the Oval. So I used to go to the Oval and watch them all from the boundary there. I remember sitting down there with my little Sam packet of sandwiches. I can tell you the name of that um, team that I watched. I mean, it was... Do you the like first to Surrey team, yes. The first Surrey team that I saw, which was... Andy Sandham was still playing yes. then. Uh, Hobbs had retired. It was Sandham, Gregory, uh, Squires, because, you know, they didn't have the names, Christian names, and it was the professionals' names. Squires, uh, I think it was Stan Squires, uh, Barling, uh, Fishlock, who did play for England once or twice, uh, J.F. Parker, he wasn't, you know, it was Parker J.F., and then, of course, the captain then, E.R.T. Holmes, uh, you know, amateur, and uh, vice-captain H.M. Garland-Wells, and uh, then was uh, the, uh, the other fast bowler, Watts, who opened with Gover, and Brooks was the woodkeeper. And that was the team. And, you know, Gover, now, there, there, yeah. there's a name that actually we can link us together, because I, I was lucky enough to go for coaching at Alf Gover's cricket school in Wandsworth, actually. What a, what a lovely, what old, pretty old man he was when I, mm. when I met him. I'd love to see him in his pomp. He was, well, legends he, abound of, of Alf Gover. Yes, because he, he was called the flat-footed fast bowler. Mm. He used to run up up this long run, and he didn't look as if he had flat feet. But he was a good... But the, the sad thing about him, I remember from reading reports, <laughs> is that Alf had more catches dropped off him than any other fast bowler bowling at that time. Did he it? didn't have a very good team to support him. Surrey weren't shining very well at that time. It was only after the war when they had those wonderful teams of PHB May and, and others and uh, then of course the, 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 the golden oh. and the Bedsers mm. and then the golden years under Stuart Surridge and uh, with Laker and Locke and, and other ones and you know five years running they were number one uh, in, in the in the is it, was it the league no the championship in the championship mm. yes that, that's that's a little senior moment so you see Don't it, worry, no, it we'll, does get to we'll an occasion <laughs> the championship of course we can, we can forgive you that and uh, no it's just trying to get over all the information and the limited time we have yeah. but Alf Gover was the man, was he not, who in India had an attack of the Delhi belly when he was running into bowl and he actually did, didn't let go of the ball and kept running, didn't he? Into that's the, right. the dressing room. That's right, he kept running. He had to pull running, him out. And he, he ran right in the dressing room. They came in eventually, knocked on the gents and said, excuse me, Alf, can we have the ball back? <laughs> yes, I, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but it's always, it's always an Alf Gover story. But mm. he had that lovely... Slightly shambolic coaching school above the garage in Wandsworth. In Wandsworth, yes. Did, did you go oh, to Battersea? Yes, because when I started to playing charity cricket for the Lord's Taverners, I realised I should get a little bit more proficient. So I went along to Alf's place, and uh, and of course then I told him of my connection and love for Surrey. And Alf was very good because he became president of the Surrey Cricket Club one time, and I went and did a couple of speeches for him. And, um, and of course then, once I did start playing charity cricket for the Lord's Taverners, then of course my... my cup was flowing over because I was turning out in charity cricket matches in the 60s with some of my heroes, I mean with Dennis Compton and Bill Edrich. Bill became quite a mate, mate actually. Godfrey Evans and uh, and, uh, and and Richie Benham I've just seen. Just a, a dream come games. true. Yeah, it was a dream come true. Yeah. And there were these great heroes, these great players and I was walking out to play with them, you know. And they were telling me where to go in the field. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. In fact, I've actually played here at Lords. Now, that was another dream come true. It was uh, <clears throat> quite... We were playing a, a game of a, 
uh, uh, my dear Colin Cowdery, whom I became very friendly with. Yes. And Colin, we were playing down there to the, to the left, I remember it vividly. But walking down the steps of the Lord's Pavilion for someone who's got this passion for the game and walking out to bat, it was a game of one or two celebrities and one or two top cricketers. And, um, and I got a few runs. The boundary was quite close on that side. And I remember Jack Simmons of Lancashire was bowling. Mm. And I, I got one or two off him. And what I say about a charity cricket game is that <clears throat> cricket is great because in charity they've come to see you play. They've come to see people get runs. Because you don't want to get the whole team out for 12. Because <laughs> there's, there's, there's nothing for them to, to watch. And we want to make money by going around and talking. And I've always said... And Frindle, and I played it so many times at Bill Frindle, because he used to play great. He was a very good fast fearless, bowler. Fast bowler, wasn't oh, he? Oh, fearless. Fearsome sight. And he, saved, like side bottom. he saved my life once when he was on the commentary uh, box, because I would rather go out and face a professional fast bowler or a professional bowler than a top club cricket. Right. Because they see a celebrity walk out. They've got this big crowd they've never had normally, just had a few friends watching. And suddenly, celebrity comes out. Oh, gee, this is it, you know. Fired up. They want to get his scalp so they can boast about it in the pub next day. And they really fire it at yes. you. Or and, even try and hit you, probably. And, and once, actually, I was playing it. I can remember where the game was now. It was up at uh, Penn Street. It's a beautiful little ground beside the pub there. And this fellow came in, my very first ball. And it was an absolute beamer. <laughs> And it was dear Bill Frindle was on the commentary at the time. He said, come off it, come off it. Look, he's a celebrity. He's not a professional cricketer. Fray back. And I, I did, f I mean, my first ball, so fortunately my reactions must have been quite good then because I was in the middle age. I did duck out of it. And I only realised next day I was opening in the West End of London in the Rocky Horror Show. I could have been maimed. Might have been knocked away from it, yes. And uh, in fact, I was then um, uh, um, on the council of the Lord's Taverners and I brought this up and I said by the way do we have any insurance on our cricket games and they said no I don't believe we do I said I think you should make those arrangements because you know we could have accidents and but I played against some of the top cricket on that game I was mentioning about with Jack Simmons I hit him for a few and I think Jack thought this is what they can do you see he, he wasn't being too aggressive and then he bought me an impossible ball and then I went past him he said I thought you'd had a bit of fun. <laughs> <laughs> that, and, 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 like and that's what I think it's, it's, it's all about. Yeah. I'll tell you one amazing distinction I have. Can I boast about it? Please. It's your moment. I bowled Dennis Lilly out. Did you? Yes. Authentically? Authentically. He was ready for it? No, he, he, wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't expecting it. it. It was one of the Lord's Taverners charity games. It was at Stockett's Manor. And we were playing a team got together by Gestetner, because the man who was Gestetner, who was an Australian, his great mate was Dennis Lilly, so he was in his team. And we had this tavern team. I was captaining the tavern team for that time. And <clears throat> we were getting them out. And in a charity game like that with the celebrities, it's almost traditional, having taken our professional bowlers off, John Price was there bowling and Fred Rumsey, and they'd had their little spell. Then you put each celebrity on for two overs. So the public see them, they yes. get knocked about a bit, and if they get knocked too much, you bring back the pros. And this is how you organise a charity cricket match. Less now than it used to be, by the way. And so I remember my old mate, Nolan Smith, he said, Connect us, you haven't done your two overs. And I was being rather modest, I was captain, I can't suddenly put myself on. No, I don't know, so I held back. And I thought, well, 
um, when they're getting out, it's almost the end of the, 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 the sequence. I better go on. So I put myself on. I didn't actually recognize it was Dennis Lilly at the other end. Now, what I say is that I'm not a bowler. I used to be a wicket keeper, actually, but I can hit the ball occasionally. But I do bowl one good ball a season. Right. And that one good ball happened to go then to Dennis Lilly. Poor old Dennis got it, did he? And he got it. And he was out. I mean, and of course, when a celebrity gets out a top pro, the cheer was immensely, yes. you know. I wanted to retire from the game there and then. I mean, th this was it. Dennis must have sledged you, presumably, did he? He must have... <laughs> no, but the, but, the, but the awful thing was, the next man who came in was his friend who was running the team and given us £5,000, you know, towards the charity. And I, fought, unfortunately, bowled another good ball in that older and got him out. Now... In these charity games, we should have said, no ball, no ball. And, of course, then I was in the doghouse. I bowled out the man who'd given the charity all this money. You don't do that sort of thing. <laughs> so, but the, the payoff is that when I went into bat, who was bowling? Oh, Dennis no. Lilly. Oh, dear. And the crowd was sort of thinking, oh, we're going to see something now. Not the revenge. But Dennis was a great sport, recognised it was a charity game. <clears throat> he put a couple... You know, and they can do that, a pro. They can put it on the spot and make it look like a good ball, but it isn't. It's something you can get your bat behind. And I got one or two runs off him. And then as he walked back, there was something about the shoulders. I thought, I'm not going to see this next ball, am I? <laughs> and I didn't. <laughs> so that's one of those great yeah. moments of cricketing memorabilia in history, which means so much. Tell me about cricket, going way back, mm. what was the atmosphere like in a cricket ground all, all those years ago? Was it very different to how it is now when you'd go along there? You mentioned with your little sandwich box and so on. I mean, you'd be, oh. you'd, you'd be frisked of that today, probably. Coming oh, no, to a, a no modern frisking. Test. No, it, was, um, it, 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 isn't, it wasn't so sophisticated as it is now. I mean, you look out here at Lords. I mean, all the new stands they built, there's a great sort of sophistication about it. And uh, I think, actually, when cricket, um, when the one-day game came in, being a purist uh, towards the sport, I thought, oh dear, no, no, this, 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 isn't, this isn't right, isn't on. But it's, I think it's done wonders for the sport. And now I really love the one-day game. And it's lovely to watch the technique and the style because you know the game's going to finish and they're going to get a result. Yes. And this is very exciting. And I recognise that um, people develop a different technique for the one-day game and the and the well, the three, well it was a three-day game of course when I was young when I was five-day uh, matches it was a four-day uh, um, test matches for a time and then it's another five days, but the thing is, what I don't understand, and maybe you as a cricketer can explain it to me, um, they say well he doesn't have the technique for that. Is it the same as we as performers? I mean, some people, I can do lots of different things. I've been a serious actor, a comedy actor. I've done stand-up comedy and, you know, I've done game shows and quiz shows. I adapt my professional technique to encompass whatever discipline is required for that Versatility particular job. Versatility is the word, isn't it? That's what we're looking for, I what? think. Versat versatility. Yes, it's the That's versatility, for, but yes. you adapt your technique yes. to whatever the job demands. Yes. Now, does the average cricketer, is he become a specialist in five-day games, a specialist in one-day games? I would have thought that the difference is only marginal. They could have adapted their approach and their technique so they can encompass both. That's absolutely right. And mm. England at the moment still seem to be through going through a phase of not knowing whether they pick 
people who bowl a bit and bat a bit and therefore mm. are useful in a one-day setup, or whether they go for those specialists and who play test cricket and who you hope can adapt to playing mm. a little bit. Michael Vaughan's quite a good case in point, isn't he? Yes. Someone who's really yes. struggled in mm. one-day cricket. Absolutely. He's had lots of chances, mm -hmm. never scored 100, and he's, he's gone out. So I guess he hasn't had that versatility. And I suppose one of the best examples of that was, uh, was Toscothic, who's unfortunately not... Yeah. available at the moment, but um, hope he will be, let's hope he re does recover from his stress-related illness. Because obviously you could tell, I mean, he had that positive uh, way of playing and that aggression, which um, uh, he can hold himself back and play more subduedly when it's necessary for five days and can really go out and be very positive in a one-day game. I think uh, um, Alistair Cook's got it as well. Yes, he has, I'm still trying to get this, this sort of atmosphere mm. Mm. Of, of, of your early years of watching mm. cricket. Was it, was it very polite? Was it very genteel? And as far as the players were concerned, did they throw themselves around the field? Did they come no. dashing in as energetically? Was it, was it a completely different game, do you think, now? Not a completely different game. Oh, no, not completely different. But it's like a lot of things. It's become more professional, and therefore it's become more... More business, there's more money involved, so it's become what I call more sophisticated. So the seating arrangements are far more sophisticated. Um, the the ordinary areas where we used to sit there were quite basic, hard benches, and 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 uh, very uninviting. The pavilions were much the same. Um, the players had a, I think, I mean, of course, one of the things I remember particularly of all was that the the amateurs, the gentlemen, would walk out to the centre of the pavilion. And the poor players, the ones who were paid to do it, would have to come round the side. Terribly infradig. Did it strike you as being rather odd? I always thought it was a bit odd, but I didn't, wasn't sufficiently, as a youngster, as a boy, wasn't, we just accepted it. You were questioning didn't, enough to... You yeah. didn't question it to see what it was. In fact, you accepted the, you know, the, the gentlemen be players' games. You know, what a snobbish thing to say. Certain people, because they weren't being paid, were gentlemen. And those who were being paid were players. Uh, you know, it I does mean, seem absurd now, doesn't it, looking it does. back at that? It wasn't that long ago. It wasn't. It's, it, it has evolved. And now, of course, the more money in the game with the one days and now the 2020s, which has got quite exciting, but not as good as the one days. It's, no. um, it, it's a bit of a... <laughs> Uh, it's a bit of a, uh, you know, um, village cricket type thing. Yeah. And I'm not sure that it helps the player's technique to have to go out and almost try and hold back, but also slog a bit like that. The thing about sport is, and it's less so now, because I think they're a bit aggressive about it, but it's, when I was young, you know, we played. And if you lost, you, you, there was no dishonour in losing. You played to the best. Yeah. Now, of course, they all want to win, which is good. But it does show, I mean, life is about being successful and if you are successful it's always at somebody else's expense i mean i'm in the most competitive profession in the world where 75 percent of members of our union equity are always unemployed it's tough it's very tough to get anywhere very tough to achieve anything so you have to accept that competitiveness keep your sense of proportion and enjoy what you do but you can play your game and enjoy it and be competitive and from that you learn but youngsters by playing games by playing sport can express themselves get rid of a lot of surplus energy which all these youngsters have and learn how to take the knocks if they come and if you lose it's far more important to go out and play a sport and lose mm -hmm. and come back fighting and try and win the next time Absolutely. and not play well, let's move away from cricket for a while, because well, I want to talk mm. to you. There's people, there's, there's you, there's Bruce Forsyth, there's Daryl Bob Monkhouse, of course. Mm. Um, just the, the, the faces of, of 40-somethings' lives. I mean, you were there on our television 
sets all the time, but, but particularly the, the, those three, I guess, real, real iconic figures. Do you still recognised around the streets now as you, as, as you might have been maybe 20 years or so ago? Oh, yes, I'm still recognised, and thank goodness, because mm. once you stop being recognised, they... Um, you know, they, 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 you, they, you, you realise you've had it. Um, because um, it, it's a strange thing. If you don't appear quite frequently on your television screens, people think you're dead. And, uh, I mean, you can star in the West End and have a run for well over a year. Uh, and it'll be probably the most memorable thing that you've achieved in your professional life. And yet fewer people will see you in one um, year than see you in one night on television. Indeed. And I've... Um, I mean, I first came to the public's um, consciousness, or whatever you want to call it, in the 60s, when I worked with the um, Arthur Haynes. And we had that comedy partnership, which was so successful on ITV. And uh, it ran for 10 years, and we got all the accolades and everything. We went to America and... With the, what's the matter? That's all right. I'm asking Shubba to save some lunch for us, because relax. Because oh, we're, I'm we're, sorry. We're going to go on for a while. I'm so sorry to explain that to it all downstairs. I just want to do just nice explain to the listeners. He was making mad signs in front of me, and I thought maybe the microphone wasn't on, or my flies were undone, or something no, like no that. No, no worries, relax. And so, but he was, what he was saying is that when we finish the conversation, we would like some lunch, so don't, he's only did it all up. <laughs> uh, thank you, Jonathan. I'm glad you're looking after my inner man. I am. And... Uh, so where were we? Yes, and so that was a, a great period, and that's what established me with the public, and it's probably everything I've done since then has stemmed from that, because once you become an established name, uh, you're more likely to be cast in something. Yes. But I went from there, I did a lot of theatre work, I started in the West End in a number of plays, and, and the biggest triumph probably was Boeing Boeing, I did that for 18 months, and it was a wonderful part for any young man. And, but the sad thing is, you see, that all these things you've done which I'm particularly proud of because it required more of your talent. Something which required less of my talent, and I found it quite easy, was a quiz show. And the sale of the century, well, which, which ban in I'll 19... have to bring that up, you see, because I, I wasn't a West End girl in, mm. in my youth, but mm. I did watch Sale of the Century, and there you were. I mean, virtually every night beaming right there on, on, on the screen. I'm afraid that's what I'll have to remember you for, Nicholas. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. I'd rather you remember for just a minute than say to the centre if you want to, because you're a radio man as well. well. That's true. But the thing is, uh, no, I'm, I mean, it was incredibly successful, and naturally, you don't buck success. I'm very proud of the success I had, because you, whatever you do, you must have contributed to it. Um, but it was so amazingly <clears throat> commercially successful that it has been remembered to the exclusion of a lot of the other things that I've ever done. And it did run for a record 14 years. And we did have the most amazing viewing figures. I mean, we were always just over 20 million. What was the format? I, I, I was trying to think just now. What, what did you have to do? You, you asked questions of your, well, of your guests. I think your... one of the reasons it was successful is it was in a brilliant format. It created by a man called Al Howard. And it was in America. Came over here and... <clears throat> I had questions. I wrote all the questions for about the first ten years. <clears throat> and um, so you ask some very simple questions to put them at their ease, and then you offer them some goods, not knockdown price, some very attractive goods. And the premise was that then they had to make up their mind whether to pay them, spend their money, and buy something they liked, right. and run the risk that they may not have the most money at the end, because the one who did have could go for the big they went the go th They went through... And I see. I'm going to get confused <coughs> with, with, with the generation game conveyor belt. I mean, it wasn't a conveyor belt, was it? They, no, a, cur no, a curtain no. would open. There'd be a gleaming boat or something. No, no. The conveyor belt went through, and they had to guess at the things, and the things they yeah. could remember on that conveyor belt was the things they kept. No, they went in. The one who had the most money at the end on the quiz side of it, answering questions, was the one 
Oh, and then go into the sale of the centre at the end, and they were offered a selection of four different items, uh, all priced at a certain lockdown price. And depending on how much money they had, they could buy one or any or of them, or maybe two. And this was the thing. But they had to, on the way to make these decisions whether to buy some of these goods which were on offer, in which case they might not finish up as the winner, or save their money and get the most money at the end right. and go for the sale of the century. Well, they might save their money, but still not come out on the winner. So there was a lot of decision-making. And that's what makes for a good success, because first of all, you have the competition, people answering questions, people love watching competitions. But when you also have decisions to make, and so you generate this, and I know from people who members of the public who spoke to me said oh how much they enjoyed it and they, they would shout at the screen you know no don't take it don't take it you see and, and and i think the loveliest thing of all which makes me feel that that person really was involved i remember meeting one person once he said oh i don't like that game of yours he said do you know i was watching it last night he said you know he said i bought the armchairs and i got the thing and i got to the side of the century and i got the car and he was, he, he was living it yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Was that the, the real pioneer of, uh, of television game shows? Were there oh, ones around? no, no. Before that, you had the big successes were um, um, Double Your Money with Huey Green. Oh, of course, yeah. And um, the other one with Michael Miles, um, Take Your Pick. And they were the two top shows. Open the Box, was that one as well? That was the Open the Box, Michael yes. Miles. A very simple game, just asking questions. Huey Green's personality meant a lot, and Michael Miles had less, but he did it very well. And he had these games, he played the yes or no game, and get money. But <clears throat> you have to remember, which maybe a lot of people don't know now, that during the early days of ITV, they only allowed, ITV really controlled, and then it became the IBA, they really controlled the network, and they laid down rules, particularly about game shows, and they would only allow two what they called major giveaways in one week on the network, three in one area. Right. There were a number of simpler shows, not s simpler in prize money, but only two would be big prizes. Nowadays, it was, came in 1976 when it was called deregulation of television, and they opened the floodgates and it became utterly commercial mm -hmm. like in America, and now they can have as many game shows as they like. And as a result, the press would take on this attitude that game shows were a bit, you know, they were a bit down market. And they became very condescending the way they criticized them. And, um, I mean, nowadays they do the right thing. They criticize them whether it's a good game show or a bad game show. Yes. And there's nothing much you can criticize in a game show unless you have a go at the film in front. So when Sale of the Century started and became incredibly successful, and it really was, I mean, we, we, we hit the jackpot. In fact, there was the second year we were running, we ran for the whole 52 weeks because there wasn't another comparably good game show on. Yeah. And this, I got from the press, this awful press sort of really catching me about how I spat out the questions of the contestants and how I was going... Uh, but what I was doing as an actor, I was trying to make it dramatic and exciting by bringing a, a sense of drama into it. And the questions I wrote for the last sequence, which were very quick, snappy questions, on the basis that it required on quickness of recall in order for them to um, um, make more money. And I used to talk to the contestants beforehand to put them at their ease so they would be at ease with me when I was putting the pressure on. And I used to say to them, I said, you know, if I snap you off towards the end because I want to get on with it, remember, I'm doing this for your sake, not to create excitement, but look at it logically, the more questions I can get in, 
in the time available, yeah. the more money, more money potentially you can yeah. make. And when you think of me being criticized for being aggressive, and you think of <coughs> the way Miss Robinson runs in the weakest link now, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I'm amazed you, that you wrote your own questions. I mean, you mentioned Miss Robinson, she, she wouldn't be doing her well, questions. Well, I've always been fascinated by general knowledge. I've always had quite a good general knowledge. And when I first got the job, um, it was an American show, and they sent up all these ghastly questions from America, because it came with a package. And they were terrible, and I, I, I told them, I said, I can't read these out. So I started writing myself. It was only after about a year when they said, we're going to get somebody else in to do the question. I said, but why? I've been doing them all. I said, I said to Peter Joy, I'm a producer, I said, I said, you didn't think that those were the stuff you sent from America? He said, I thought they sounded a bit British. I said, it was me. He said, but it's illegal. The IBA won't allow it. <laughs> um, you mentioned the competition between... Uh, between cricketers, of course, and so on, but the competition between, I know you, Huey Green, Bruce Forsyth, um, Michael Aspel, I'm trying to think of any others, there were those sort of little, little group of you, really, weren't there, who, who, who were the, the front men for all these programmes? No, no, it's a very competitive profession. I mean, you only get a job at someone else's expense. I mean, sometimes there's been jobs in the theatre and, and films and so forth that I was very anxious that I would get. And when they cast somebody who I didn't think was up quite up to it, then you would get a bit niffed. But I've always had this attitude, if somebody got a part in a play or a film or something which I particularly wanted, and they are good, I'm, I'm very happy because I thought, well, they preferred him. It was their choice. I, I can't complain about that. And they at least have the talent to do the job. Because yeah. there's so many people around who have got lots of talent. Um, and there's a lot of luck in whether they choose you because you're always in the mercy of whether your personality or your talent appeals to the person who's casting it. But, but there's no rivalry in when I was doing a quiz show in that sense. I mean, I mentioned those other two, Huey Green and, and Michael Miles. Those two shows had disappeared and there was a vacancy for a good new quiz show and that's why Sale of the Century happened to fill that niche and it be, took off and became successful. I think that Bruce Forsyth is one of the most a successful um, game show host because Bruce has got this incredible ability to engage with the audience and almost <laughs> not insult them but, but have fun with them at their expense and they don't take offence. It's a huge, huge gift. Yes. I mean, take one quiz show that you, you, run, you play your cards right. I was on a programme quite recently being interviewed and they said, um, your show was voted one of the best. Do you think the quiz show host makes? I said, no, it's a contributory factor but you take a, a quiz like play your cards right, which I don't think was a great uh, game. No. But Bruce's personality... Thought, it? it was all just a gamble, wasn't and, it? And Bruce, yes, and Br yes. Bruce's way to play it and his personality <laughs> made it a huge success. Yeah. Bob Monkhouse was, was superb at his job, a, a great game show host. Um, but nowadays, they're more inclined to just get younger people who do a rather bland job. And, but maybe that's what they want. You know, you can't complain because if that's what the employer wants, you you have to go with it. Yes. Chris Tarrant, I mean, his show. Do you oh, Chris, is, yeah. is, Chris is great. Yeah. Another, I mean, of today's lot, I mean, Chris is, is absolutely the tops. And I do think that um, Millionaire is one of the best Chris shows ever. I mean, I, I enjoy watching it, and Chris runs it brilliantly. But but it's what I'm saying earlier on. It's all the ingredients that make the success. So somebody's got a superb idea. And they've refined it with this thing about, um, you know, multiple choice, which was a, a new thing. It was always questions and answers before. And then you've got, you know, phone a friend and 50-50 um, and those other things. The now, you, you've got all these different factors. And then you need the right guy to run it. 
and Chris is superb at that. Yeah. In fact, it's not the way he's run other quizzes, the way he ran that one is, he's developed a technique there, which, but it's all those ingredients coming together which makes for a huge success. Yeah. What was early tally like? Because you must have been there in the real <laughs> pioneering days, wasn't you? The, the, yes. the, the, the camera on the stilts and, and being lugged around. Oh, I'm, I'm old studio enough. Studio-bound stuff, I'd think. old enough, Jonathan, to tell you that I was in the very, one of the very first plays ever done from Alexandra Palace, where it all began. And I continued the play, it was an old card's famous um, Hay Fever. Right. And the director was um, Fred O'Donovan, who has come from radio. And it was a small studio, and of course it was all live, you had to keep it going. And the heat was unbelievable, because <laughs> they hadn't got it refined, they needed these tense cameras. And the cameras were very heavy and solid, and they didn't have these runners, and they had to organise it, it was lots of rehearsal on this heat, to make sure that that camera could get in there to take that shot and so forth. And we kept going and... Um, it must take an hour, is it? Uh, well, no, once the show was going, we had to keep going, because you've got an edit and like that. Oh, right. and it never been thought of. Even with the Arthur Haynes show, which was in the 60s, we st it was still live television. We didn't... I mean, a, a tape had come in then, but they couldn't edit tape, so we still treated it as live. My word, there was a real pressure on there, then. Oh, yes, and doing a comedy show under pressure. Um, which is fun, but the play was easier because you could time it and make sure it all finished. But when we, and Arthur would never learn all the lines. So, he you was know, the we main were, man though. He was the main man, I know, but he used to rely on me. I had a good memory, I used to keep all the, the words of the sketch in my head. And often he would dry and he'd look at me as you're looking at me now. <laughs> and he just, he'd, and, I, and I knew he'd gone. So I then had to feed him in the line. And then he'd gag about that. He loved being spontaneous. And there were we, gagging and ad living together, great experience. And the audience loved it, because they see something had gone wrong. And we were improvising. But then again, we get messages from the floor manager just behind the camera to speed it up, because otherwise they're going to go run over time. But you could never train, it is training really, that, isn't it, like, like that today? Wonderful, what, what, what's a way to, yes, to start? But then again, you see, as an actor, I started in rep where you did a weekly rep, a different play every week, and you were rehearsing and learning the part of one play during the day and then playing another one at night. And, you know, all kinds of things would go wrong because some of the actors hadn't got their words fully in their head. Sometimes things would technically go wrong. And you had to, you learned to improvise. Mm. And this is the greatest training you can have as an actor. And the, I, mean, I mean, I was privileged with Arthur Haynes because it was a wonderfully successful show and we happened to blend so professionally. It was a, it was a mutual rapport which created this sort of uh, as a professional empathy, I think would be a good word to use, which created a bond. I mean, like uh, Eric and Ernie, Eric Mork and Ernie had it, and it was it was a magic that when they were together, I think we had something of that. And it was very sad when he got a second heart attack and died. Mind you, he had changed his mind by then, and he thought I was getting too much attention and got rid of me and got somebody else in. But, uh, <laughs> but it didn't work quite so well. This is the proof of it. The public get used to that particular... Uh, partnership yes. and uh, but it was a wonderful wonderful time working with Arthur and I say live it was so exciting this is you see the adrenaline pumps twice as strongly because you know you can't make a mistake yeah. and if anything goes wrong you've got to get out of it and still finish on time oh one I mean I've had such a wonderful training there's no wonder that I could encompass any kind of job now because my days in rep my days with Arthur Haynes and improvised comedy on oh and of course, the, the sketches were written by that wonderful man, Johnny Spate. Right. That's how he started. And Johnny would write these wonderful, wonderful ideas, wonderful sketches. I'm actually trying very hard now to get these sketches back on television because we all... The They'll work now, would they? They'll stand the test of time? Well, it depends because they're all in black and white. And there is, to some extent, some of the shows...
there is a period feel about them. But the sketches, the comedy, is timeless. Yeah. It's wonderful, brilliant, original writing by Johnny Spate. And we did break new ground in comedy. And you, you'd have called us at the time, but they'd use the word alternative. Well, I think it's a ridiculous word anyway, because there's no such thing. You know, if something's funny, it's funny. There's no such thing as alternative to humor. And, um, and we're, we're talking to, um, we're putting together a package and taking it to the broadcasters, saying, Here, here's this. And um, it, it's timeless, some of it. And hopefully they'll buy it. Yeah. And it'll have a, because a lot of people have forgotten about Haynes. And, and Parsons together. You see, Tony Hancock's and his sketches, and there are far fewer of his material available, and some of his stuff isn't as funny as ours. He was, they've always been reminded of Tony as the years have gone by. His very clever brother, Roger, who was his agent, has always kept them in front of the public, so people remember it, and they have the memorabilia comes back and they enjoy it. Mm. And I'm afraid people have forgotten this. And uh, we hope that we can revive something that still people will remember it and also strike a chord where people say, gosh, this is amazing. We'll still see you on reruns of Benny Hill shows, though. Yes, I did three years with Benny. Working <laughs> what was he a, like as an as a oh, individual? Benny was one of the sweetest, loveliest men I've ever worked with. He was genuine. He, was a, he, he knew exactly what he wanted. And um, you didn't need it. But he did it with such gentleness and charm. Uh, and very generous. Most comedians have difficulty putting their hands in their pockets, you know, there's some insecurity up there which has probably driven them to becoming performers, going out there and facing an audience and getting that reassurance. And maybe the, the money they get is a reassurance that, 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 that they can achieve it. But I've met very few comedians who can open their pockets and um, give me one. I mean, it's this, this apocryphal. I mean, stories they tell about Max Miller from the old days and, and Tommy Cooper, whom everybody loved, but Tommy never put his hand in his pocket. Tommy's great gag was that um, he'd meet you and he'd say, um, he said, um, oh, let's have a drink. Right. Yes, yes. It's, um, and and he said, thank you. Yes, you have a drink. Right. Um, he said, what's yours? And you say, oh, well, I'll have a gin and tonic. Great, I'll have one too. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way it was then, was yeah, it? Yeah, never been. And but now, but, and, and, Benny but Arthur, Arthur, Arthur was reasonably generous, and, but, but Benny just, money didn't mean anything to him. He used to give a wonderful party at the end of each show. When he died, you know, there was unpaid checks and cash all over the place. Yeah. Lovely man, sweet, sweet man. And to me, as someone who liked him immensely and got to know him very well, it is sad to think he's, he has achieved more around the world than any other British comedian with the exception of Charlie Chaplin. His programs are still played, not only in America, where he was, became almost an icon, mm. but all kinds of countries all over the world are playing the Benny Hill programs. I know this because I get little repeat fees of £2.50 from Very Zimbabwe handy. or <laughs> somewhere. And, um, and, and he's achieved this great distinction, and yet he was never fully respected in his own country. And was it because it was slightly naughty humour, do you think? Did, did, did the British really take it? I mean, we, we all laughed and loved it, but was there something no, that perhaps we shouldn't have liked about oh, it? Oh, no, no. Yeah. One or two people, because there was a great sort of vogue um, um, then for being politically correct, and they thought that some of Benny's humour was sexist, because he used to trace, chase pretty girls. Yes. But he was also... I mean, the thing I have to remember, his humour came from the tradition of music hall, which was always like that, and seaside postcards, and that's what he followed. But humour is very interesting. He was always the fall guy, 
I mean, the pretty girl always got one over on him. He was always the one who, was, who suffered. And I don't understand it. There was a, a vogue then, and they were a bit insensitive about it. But he's still incredibly popular. And yeah. when they did that revival quite recently, as a retrospective of Benny, it got incredible viewing figures. Yeah. I'm just very sad to think that the British don't accept him for the kind of humor he did and the tradition he came from, which is appreciated and enjoyed around the world still, and yet not in our country. Very interesting, isn't it? It is. Can I finish on this thing about ageism? Because it, I suffer from it in a very amusing and interesting way. On just a minute, which we haven't actually mentioned yet. We haven't, we should do. I realize that being a good straight man, as I have been with, with, with Arthur Haynes and with Benny Hill, which you just mentioned, um, part of the foil of being a good straight man is to be the put-down guy. You can have others having jokes at your expense. And the thing is that in just a minute, I realize I've got three responsibilities. One is to kind of keep the show going, keep it up, to generate the fun, and also be there as the butt for their humor. Right. And of course, some of the today's comics are absolutely wonderful. I mean, Paul Merton's outstanding the way he plays the game. We have such a wonderful people who want to come on it. I mean, it's really, you know, yourself, John, we don't get a fortune in radio, but people want to be in the show. Could you do just a minute on cricket? Well, I'd try. Speak but for I mean, a minute on cricket without repetition. Without repeti hesitation, repetition. I'd try, but I'd probably. Remember, I don't play the game, so no. I'm not doing You've it. You've got all the easy time. part. You can sit but, there and just yes. pull. Yes. But, but I've also, what I'm needing to say is that, that realise if you're going to be a, a straight man, you've also got to be prepared to take jokes about your age. And people love jokes about age. And all the old. When I was with the four regulars, we had you know, Peter Jones and Nimmon and um, Kenneth Williams and Clement Freud. They were all much the same age as me, but they still made jokes about my age. And the audience <laughs> roared with laughter. It, it's an interesting thing about this country and, and humour and ageist humour, but I just, I just feed on it now. Yeah. And they want to make something. Well, you've, you've mentioned a name there. We had an email, actually, from, from Neil in Glasgow. Tell us some interesting experience about Kenneth Williams. You, mm. you must have had plenty to, to, to share about him. Another comic that was only just oh, recently comic, was Kenneth was, was amazing and... Uh, I knew him when I first worked in Rep at Bromley, which I mentioned before, because Kenneth used to come and guest occasionally. What a lot of people don't know was that he had aspirations to become a serious actor. He was a very fine serious actor. And it was only when he put on these voices and everybody loved it so much, he realised he had more commercial success as a comedian. He never actually respected that work he did in the carry-on films. He was a self-educated man, but he was an incredibly funny man. Before we went out to do Just a Minute, we would be talking there... And he would just tell us a story, as you might tell a story about some experience you'd had the night before with some people you were with. And he would make it so excruciatingly funny. We were falling about with laughter before we went out. He would do all the characters and the voices. He was, he was a natural, as we yeah. call it. It's funny because a lot of comics I've found, all the ones that mm. I've met, actually struggle to be funny in, in real life, don't they? they? And they feel that there's a terrible pressure on them to make people laugh. Out of working hours, if you like, but, you know, here's so-and-so, he's going to make us laugh, and, and that must be a terrible pressure on a comic. I think there's a, a very serious side to a lot of comedians. They're very analytical about it, because you have to be, you have to analyse your jokes, make sure, you know, refine uh, them and so forth. Some people are naturally ebullient and fun people, like Tommy Cooper, who's just naturally funny, because... Everything he said, he was telling me a very serious story about working in Cabaret in New York, and I was falling about with laughter. He said, Look, oh, he says this is serious. He said, I was suffering. I was <laughs> and I, and it, it, was, it was, it's interesting. You see, some people are naturally funny people, and other people are very serious about their humor. And also, you have to remember that there is the 
other aspect. There's the pathos. And some of the best humor comes from pathos. It's appealing to something rather sad. Yes. And so in a lot of comics, there is that pathos, which they draw on to make you... Best example of all is Tony Hancock. He drew on the his own experiences, you know, he was obviously a very depressed person, and he drew on the that depression within him to create this fellow, you know, Elicious um, Hancock, you know, the fellow who lived in railway cuttings, a so. man who had ideas above his station. But he was drawing on that side of his nature to create something very funny. But in real life, he was incredibly serious. He wasn't a funny man in real life, but his comedy timing was such brilliance that he could make you laugh with it. Yeah. Comedy is a, it, it's a, it's a lifelong study, and I feel privileged to have worked in comedy all my life and with some of the greatest comedians and my knowledge and feeling and understanding of it is amazing and I think that's one of the things that keeps you going it's the fact it is always unpredictable you never know where the laugh is coming and how to do it and when I do my shows my after dinners and I tell them see sometime that joke will get a better laugh than another time and I know it's that subtlety of timing that is breaking through and creating something I mean you've only got to hear an amateur tell a joke which you maybe heard and it's quite embarrassing. Then you hear a pro tell it, and it is that subtlety of timing that suddenly makes it funny. And also it relies on the speed of delivery. Take my friend Paul Merton, who I think is a comic mm. genius, but he's got one of the greatest comic brains I come across. And on just a minute, if you listen to him, it's his speed of reaction and his instant reply. It's the, it's the instantaneous comic timing like that, which makes it funny. Take it out of context and say, and, and he you say, repeat what he told you, if, you know, sometime later. It doesn't sound very funny. Mm. I mean, comedy is a fascinating world. You can sit down and write it and prepare it, and then you time it and do it. Other times you can work in spontaneous humor, which just a minute's all about. And that's why it's such a challenge and such a joy. And I must tell you to finish, I know you're looking at the time. When I go to do just a minute, which is now my favorite job, it, it's exciting another sort of adrenaline rush because you never know what's going to happen and you're living dangerously professionally and it's that thing will it happen and somebody once said to me do you still get nervous and I said well I wouldn't be in the business if I wasn't but the thing is that as you get more experience your nerves take on a different attitude when you're young you're nervous because you think wait a minute will it work can I hack it are they going to laugh I might fail yes. I might fail but when you've done lots of experience, you know, like just a minute, I go out just a minute every time, I think, we've done it before, I've been doing it for 40 years now, I've done nearly 900 shows, I've done it. And you get a bit nervous and tense because you think, will it happen again? Mm. And so that advises you <coughs> then, and you go out and hopefully something will happen, and it happens again. And it's exciting and lovely. And that's again, I think there's affinity between cricket and show business. I think maybe that's why a lot of actors love cricket and like playing it and watching it because it's the it's one of the games where the antithesis of golf where if you don't make the correct stroke it's technically if you're not technically correct that ball won't travel but when you're out in the center there and you get a ball coming towards you you know there's a correct way to hit it but you maybe have to improvise you have to do something and that's the instinct of the performer 
who's living dangerously out there and doing it and making work and it becomes magic and it's magic to the spectator and there's a great affinity between cricket and, and acting, particularly comedy acting. Well, it was magic listening to you, Nicholas. Really has. And it's well, been far too long since we had you in here. I'm delighted that you've made it. Uh, I thought you were going to say you've been here too far too long. No, certainly not. I could, I could go on for ages. You Today. have given me one of my real personal thrills, being here, not only at the Lords and watching the Test Match, but being with all my heroes from Test Match Special, really. You've made it magic for me. Well, it goes without saying, we're as thrilled to have Nicholas Parsons with us as he was to visit Test Match Special. Nicholas died early in 2020 at the remarkable age of 96 and we're still presenting just a minute until late in the previous year. A truly special man. Now, we hope you're enjoying these memories as we celebrate 40 years of View from the Boundary interviews. There's a whole load more available on BBC Sounds, including a chat with the acting great Peter O'Toole. And where does Tool, uh, Tool bat, though? He opens. You go in first? Yes. Against all the hostile, Against fast Against all the bowling. hostile stuff, yeah. And what do you look like in a helmet? Well, I... We were playing in Northamptonshire, and a distinguished pro was in the other side, and he insisted that we all wear helmets because the, the pitch was bouncing and taking spin. Good gracious. So I went in the pavilion, and I was given a helmet, and I couldn't find my way out of the pavilion. <laughs> I stumbled around, and I couldn't see where the door was. And I felt, and I'm sure I looked like a Dalek. <laughs> so I took it off. Yeah. And what about, what about the bowling, then? Do you, you get any wickets? Sometimes I get a wicket or two. I get a few maidens. For me, a one run now is what six runs meant when I was a boy. Mm. One wicket now means a five-wicket haul. Mm. If I do a piece of decent fielding, I'm very happy. If I take a catch, I'm delirious. And as long as I don't become a passenger with the team, I'll, I'll keep on playing. Are you good at sprinting around the boundary? Oh, that's a great sight. I'm greatly <laughs> encouraged by my team. I say, go on, go on, off he goes, off he goes. And I puff and pant. And <laughs> so look out for lots more of our classic View from the Boundary series and make sure you don't miss a thing by subscribing to the Test Match Special podcast on BBC Sounds. Classic View from the Boundary on BBC Sounds. Alan Shearer and Ian Wright are in my kitchen. Mm. What's going on here? The all-new Match of the Day Top Ten podcast, answering a huge football question every week. This has not been easy, has it? Like the Top Ten Premier League Strikers. Firstly, I think it's really hard to have Shearer anywhere near the top ten. <laughs> the Match of the Day Top Ten podcast. Only available on BBC Sounds. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts.